0: You're listening
1: to New New Voices, Voices. a production of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy Project. This podcast is sponsored by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and partner institutions. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Haley Brennan. In this episode, I speak with Professor Gary Ostertag of the City University of New York we discuss the life, context, and achievements of Emily Elizabeth Constance Jones, an early analytic philosopher who was working around the same time as people like Gottlob Frege and Bertrand Russell. Gary and I also talk about the positive philosophical value of writing about other people's ideas, and the question of what it means to point out that Jones may have anticipated the work of Frege. Gary closes by offering some suggestions for where to start with reading Jones's work. Well, Gary Ostertag, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Oh, well, thank you for having me.
1: So today we're going to talk a bit about E.E. E. Constance Jones, and I'm going to just maybe start by asking you to talk a little bit about her, so maybe we can start by hearing a little bit about her as, as a person, her historical context, um, before we get into her her philosophical ideas.
0: So sure. so E Constance Jones Emily Elizabeth Constance Jones was born in 1848 and died in 1922. Um, in her late 20s she matriculated at Girton College Cambridge where which was just recently established as a women's college and she was she had to spend time you know her brother's education to priority over hers, and then she had to spend some time back and forth at home taking care of an aunt. So not only did she attend you know, rather late, but also it was interrupted you know, some, you know, for a few years by taking care of this elderly aunt. Um, but she did finish. Um, she, she got a first class in the moral sciences tripos, and her, her examiners were Henry Sidgwick um, and um, John Neville Keynes, the father to John Maynard Keynes, and James Ward. So a pretty um, intense group of examiners. And uh, she um, was invited back to Cambridge in, I believe, 1884, just as a research associate. And then she began teaching um, courses, introductory courses in logic and ethics. Um, She became a librarian, vice mistress, and finally, in the early 20th century, mistress of Girton, from which she retired in 1916. So during that period, she published quite a bit. I mean, what's astonishing is how much she published, Mm. but not just how much, but the venues in which she published. So if you, when I first started doing research on her in the, in the mid-90s, um, I just go to the old, st- you know, the, the, the journal stacks, mine, the Aristotelian Society, the International Journal of Ethics, and you just, it's all there, right? Now it's an all-in-J all store, so it's very easy to research, but um, she published quite a bit from, say, 1890 until the late teens, okay? Mm. So we're talking of a, a period of 25 years. And she um, wrote... Because of her teaching, I believe, she wrote uh, several introductory books. And then her, her um, major manuscript, uh, uh, publication rather, was um, A New Law of Thought, which was published in 1911 on Cambridge University Press. Um, so when she became mistress, she was actually pretty good at her, at her job. She, the, 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 the college was in debt. Um, considerable debt in when she uh, became mistress in, I think, 1904. But when she retired, they, the debt had been paid off and she had gotten funds for fellowships. Um, and she was really quite well-liked, um, at least by the students there um, and uh, the philosophical community. And when she passed away in the early 20s, there were each of the journals in which she published, uh, Mind, the Aristotelian Society, and the International Journal of Ethics, had you know, um, obituaries about her. You know, so she was definitely, seemed to be a loved person of the philosophical community.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting because a lot of the, well, several of the figures that we've talked about on the podcast so far were alive a few centuries before E.E. E. Constance Jones. So even if their sort of elision from the philosophical canon isn't really justified, in a way it's a little bit easier to explain because like hundreds of years have passed and all of the different sociopolitical situations that led to their exclusion from the canon, you know, accrued over over years and years and years, decades and decades. So I'm curious what, I mean, what you think happened here? Because it sounds like she is a person who, as you said, was really a beloved part of the philosophical community. And we're only talking about a 100 years since that time, you know, today.
0: So it's, it's an interesting question. And, um my views on this have actually changed only in the past few months so i've written an encyclopedia piece on her for the stanford encyclopedia and that was recently revived about a year ago and some other pieces i've written on her as well on her um, response to henry sidgwick um, the dualism on the dualism of practical reason um, but i've been rereading um writings of my late wife eileen o'neill and especially her paper disappearing ink and um, so her problem in that paper is what she calls the problem of disappearing ink, which is, okay, these, there are women in the early modern period who published widely, um, their books went into several editions in many cases, were part of the philosophical community, were referred to by other major figures, and then all of a sudden, written out of the history somewhere in the early 19th century. So why? And then, of course, when we go back, we have to go back all the way to that period, because if we read the 19th century histories or any subsequent histories, they're just not there. So I can't review the, the argument of that paper, but one of the things she does point out is that many of the women would, um, were committed to a, an outmoded approach or epistemic, as she puts it, right? So a perfect example would be Anna Maria von Skurman, right? So she, she, one of her major works is um, whether a maid can be a scholar or whether a woman can be a scholar. But now, um, if you look at von Skurman, um, it's It's presented as a series of syllogisms to convince the skeptic that it's it's fitting for a woman to be a scholar. So she's writing in a very outmoded, um, you know, sort of like format, right? This is not something that you expect now from the se- going back to the seventeenth century. You have all these, you know, dramatically new figures, and they're not really wedded to the Aristotelian format. She's talking about the fittingness of a wo- woman to be a scholar, so there's a little bit of like the idea of some kind of Aristotelian notion of a form, whether there's a compatibility of scholarship and being a woman. So, in in a sense, there's there are there are forward-looking ideas here, right? This is she's she's a feminist or a precursor to feminism but the entire framework that she's presenting this in is sort of outmoded. And so why was she forgotten? Well, it might well be not because of her ideas, but, but the framework in which she's expressing okay. them, right? Okay. So when, I, when you look at Jones, why was she forgotten? Well, she's, she, she, is, she has literally both feet in the 19th century. She's committed to the logic texts of that period and to her teachers, and she's trying to solve problems that emerged in the 19th century. Um, and so when you have people like Russell, of course, Russell and Frege and Moore, they're all men. And this, of course, is not, is not an incidental feature. And that's as to why they are remembered. But there is a lot of men, like Stout, for example, who are also forgotten. Um, maybe not as, not, they're not as obscure figures as Jones is. But still, nobody's spending that much time reading Stout these days. Because why? They're, they're again, part of this old world. And the, the new stuff that's happening has just changed our conception of, say, epistemology and metaphysics in such a dramatic way, um, and also introduced new disciplines in a sense, that um, it's it's not too surprising why she might be forgotten. Not simply that she was a woman, of course there's that, um, and that she might have been treated condescendingly by some of her peers during that period, I think that's clear. Um, but I also think that part of the reason is that when you're looking at the early part of the century, the first twenty years, you're thinking Frege, Russell, the new logic, um logic is the concept you know, as the essence of philosophy. and and she simply does not fit that.
1: Yeah, maybe now is a good time to back up a little bit and talk about what some of Jones's sort of signature philosophical views are. So my understanding is that she worked in logic and then also in ethics, but her work in ethics, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like was mostly sort of expounding upon and then defending Sidgwick. Is that correct?
0: That is correct, yes.
1: So if we're talking about her most sort of, like I said, signature contributions, things that we can really identify as her ideas, we'd be looking more at her logic.
0: Yes. um, I don't, I, I think that's the general perception. And I think, for example, in Stout's um, obituary for her, he he made this kind of point that really her major contributions are in logic and in ethics. It's roughly just expository of Sidgwick. I I think um, I think she had um, an important contribution to make there. She didn't write as much about this, but I think um, in a way, you know, the people who preserve who do mention her are the are the people who do nineteenth century ethics, Victorian ethics. So um, Bart Schultz in his book on mm-hmm. Sidgwick, The Eye of the Universe. Mentions Jones and also points out that she was considered "quote unquote" a Sidgwick's prize student, right? And mm-hmm. So she was um, Sidgwick's um, literary executor and was responsible for the last few editions of um, Sidgwick's Methods of Ethics and other, um, you know, l- lectures that were pu- published posthumously. So I, I th- I, she didn't write as much, but I do think that what she did contribute, in, especially in her late, late writings on um, practical dualism, for example, in the proceedings of the Aristotelian Society. Um, those are valuable, um, and to my mind, as valuable as are contributions to philosophical logic. And yes, they are they are the result of expository work, but they cover they break new ground, it seems to me.
1: And that's so interesting because, as many of us who work on figures in the history of philosophy are like intimately familiar with and aware of, there's no it's not the case that expository work can't lead to, quote unquote original or quote unquote new contributions, right? So like engaging in expository work on a historical figure, even even if it's not someone that you worked with personally, um, as was the case with Johnson Sidgwick, um, at least it's my opinion that that can be a genuinely productive mode of philosophizing and that we're not just explaining what others said, but also engaging in something more um, dynamic as well.
0: Yeah, this is, is an interesting question about this, because this is what um, Michelle Duff called the, the Eloise position, right, in um, one of her early papers. Um, and so, well, yeah, w- women up until the 20th century, even including Simone de Beauvoir, they were just sort of, they were not really philosophers, right? They were just responding to these men. I mean, she abandoned that picture very quickly by the late seven, late eighties, I think. But the point is that she she did hold it for a while, and 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 that that cuts out a lot of really important contributions that women made and the way they made their contribution. So if you think, well, if they haven't been in a treatise on their own, you know, and working through their own ideas, then it's not worth really, um, you know, discussing them. Well, then you're gonna not you're gonna ignore a huge chunk of what women did um, from the early modern period into the twentieth century, and you know, a lot of that is important and as I said before, you're breaking new ground. So um, yes, it's not, you don't have something like the methods of ethics coming out of um, Jones, but she does solve a problem that, or or at least made an important um, contribution to the solution that Sidgwick thought was, you know, one of the weaknesses of his project. Um, so, um, yeah. It, so, I think uh, it's it's worth considering these works, even if they're not the kinds of things, you know, like um, the Critique of Pure Reason or Descartes' Meditations. Still, there's some value. There's some gold there, basically.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because thinking back on the question that I asked, that led to this discussion, I there was an assumption there that there's a strong strong distinction to be drawn between one's own work and work that's expository. And this, the way that our discussion has unfolded has made me think about how maybe one thing that it would behoove us to do as people working on historical figures who've been left out is to like challenge that assumption. And especially working with women, it sounds like, who maybe like historically in some cases were just, for whatever reason, it was more open to them to work on or to write about others.
0: Yeah, like, look, look the, t- the classic case would be like Descartes' correspondence with Elizabeth. All we have really are is is that in- interaction. But that's kind of like that's that's valuable nonetheless. Even if the, we don't really get a full approach, a full theory, we have something that's. Um, it would be we would be the the poorer if we didn't have that interaction. And a lot of things happen in the early modern period and going into the twentieth century that are quite like that. Um, and so we have to we have to find the gold where it is and we can't expect everybody to write a treatise. And it seems honestly when, when Jones does write those long monographs, they don't work necessarily as well as those nice little dialectical points that she makes makes in opposition to this or that figure.
1: Yeah, and we're gonna or I'm gonna ask you a little bit about teaching later, but one thing that I think about in my pedagogical practice or my teaching practice is how, Maybe the philosophical essay, which is, you could think of it almost as like the building block of the treatise, like, isn't the only mode that philosophy can be done well in. And even for some, you know, different thinkers, maybe different modes or formats are are better suited to their style or to the ideas that they're interested in. So uh, I really like thinking about Jones as someone who could be an example of that.
0: Right. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So before we get too far away from this point, I just wanted to ask if you could explain a little bit about what practical dualism is, um, because I'm not very familiar with, uh, the actual content of Jones's work. And I imagine some listeners might have that question too.
0: So the dualism of practical reason is something that, um, is, is a phrase from Sidgwick's, the methods of ethics. And the, 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 concern is that, you know, we have these two principles of both self-love and benevolence. And, um, the worries on the one hand is like we, we want to there's a dualism of principles which is problematic already but that they can come conceivably into conflict and Jones's solution I mean it's it's a it's in her essay practical dualism and it also um in a very useful encyclopedia piece that she wrote on Sidgwick I think that was the last thing she wrote and honestly without the encyclopedia piece it's very hard to make sense of the practical dualism paper um the practical dualism paper it, it that was in the Aristotelian society and it's it's almost appears as kind of notes for a paper rather than the paper itself. And then it falls together when you read the subsequent um, uh, piece on Sidgwick. But so there's, there's a the dualism of these principles um, or methods in, in, um, in uh, Sidgwick's phrase. Um, and so her response to that is essentially that, um, that benevolence presupposes self love. And one One real difficulty in reading her is to realize that she means the relationship of presupposition in this paper because she doesn't have that concept. But all of a sudden, when you think read her in that way, everything sort of like... Um, becomes clear, and her view is that look, even even in something like the Golden Rule, love thy neighbors thyself. She says, look, the, the presupposition is that you already love yourself; that that's that's coherent, and then you're supposed to apply that to another person. And so, part of her attempt to break out of this dualism or this this the problem make make the dualism seem less problematic is to show that there's already a presupposition in benevolence, um, and that requires self love. Um,
1: Thank you. So. From what little I know about Jones's contributions in logic, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a structural similarity here. Uh, in so, in the sense that my understanding of her work in logic is that she was working on um, a theory of sub- like s- substantial propositions. So, not saying not h- how to deal with the paradox that uh, propositions seem to either collapse into identity or um, imply a contradiction, Mm -hmm, right? mm
0: -hmm. Yes, yes.
1: Um, And so it's interesting to think about how this practical dualism, the idea that benevolence or love of others already sort of includes love of self, like that seems to me to suggest I don't know. Somehow I feel like there's a similarity there. Like there's almost a parallel in terms of the structure. Does that, does that make sense?
0: It does make sense. And it has been pointed out to me. Um, it's not something I arrived on on my own, but there's a kind of Hegelian thing going on, both in her response to um, the kind of Frege puzzles that you mentioned. Right. And then in response to this dualism. Right. Yes. Um, but I don't know enough about, Hey, I'm sort of outside of my wheelhouse when it comes to Frege. So I just have to nod and say, hey, I have to pursue this more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, that sounds good. I think that, um, that's just something we could leave alone for now. But um, I guess now might be a good time then to talk a little bit about Jones's contributions and logic. So Mm -hmm. I outlined a little bit about at least the problem that she was Mm -hmm. dealing with, but maybe you could, um, first of all, clarify that in case there was anything that I misrepresented, but then I'll talk about how she responded to it.
0: Yeah, so that's a nice segue. I think that basically she she gets, um, she quotes, makes judicious quotes from Lutz's logic, And she, she, her first philosophical project was to complete um, the translation of Lotze's Microcosmos that um, Elizabeth Haldane, I believe, had finished the first half of it, and um, then so she got into uh, Lotze's logic, and you know Jones's German was very good, and so um, Lotze has this kind of what I call in my Stanford piece the paradox of predication, just to give it a label, Um, and so it comes off, it comes out of this idea, and I don't want to get too involved in the technical details, but she says. In her autobiography, ever since I was a student, I was I was just captivated by these questions about identity and predication, moving from the sophist and so on. You know, the idea of theta tita flies right. The idea that how could the how does the property attach to the individual? And maybe maybe this is true, maybe not. But she definitely got the she got she was started getting getting worried about this with Lotze because Lotze denies there's any and and it's, it's it's pretty obscure. But it does seem to me that he denies that that predication is intelligible because you're just saying of something, you're saying of something what it's not. If you say that Theaetetus flies, well, Theaetetus is not the property of flying. So what are you doing when you're attributing a property Mm -hmm. to him? So all predication is at at root identity. All you're ever saying is A is A. So when you say that Theaetetus flies, you're saying that Theaetetus is identical to some or other individual who flies. But that's how they thought, that's, that's the Lutzian view of predication. And so Jones was like, look, I mean, that's great in that it solves one problem, but it just introduces this other problem that um, all predication will be trifling. So her new law of thought, which is the title of her book of 1911, emerged in 1890 and 1892 in her books on logic and her textbooks on logic, you know, the elements of logic as a science of propositions, for example. And then she um, articulates this view, very similar to Frege, on which... um, when you, when you assert a predicate, now this is not Frege's view of predication, I should add, but it's similar to Frege's view on identity. Um, when you assert um, a predication, you are asserting an identity, but you're doing it um, in such a way that while you're saying A is A at one level, you're, you, you are presenting A twice over according to different connotations, right? Different ways of thinking about it. So you have something, even in her formulations, that is very much like Frege's view, right? Um, so, so there is a, there's the kind of Fregean view of sense and reference that she already has in 1890, and Frege didn't really come upon that until you know, roughly the same period. He publishes it in 1892 and 1893, uh, concept and object, and on sense and reference, you get this distinction. Um, now, there's a, you know, when, 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 when Jones was first presented to modern readers in Mary Ellen um the fourth volume of her History of Women Philosophers, they, they pointed out that, that, that Jones did anticipate um, Frege, question is, of course, um, what does it mean? Did did they have the same distinction, right? Because it's at some level of, of abstraction, clearly it's the same thing, but at some level it might be different. Okay.
1: Yeah. So this gets back to a question I actually had when we were first talking about why Jones has been left out of the canon of, I guess, early analytic philosophy. But maybe one way to understand it is, okay, temporally, she's part of this quote-unquote early analytic period but in other ways she really has like you said both feet in the 19th century yeah but the idea that she anticipated Frege, when well, we do think of frega as being someone who at least was very important to early analytic philosophy makes me wonder like was her what exactly was it about her work that was in a way not forward-looking. Like, was it the problem itself? Was it her approach to the problem? Just because you might think the claim, like, oh, E.E. Constance Jones anticipated and that seems to suggest she was, like, really ahead of her time, not someone who was sort of, someone who was still operating within a 19th century context. Does that make sense as a No, that makes perfect
0: sense. And if we go back to Anna Maria von Skurman, she was ahead of her time, too. She was was saying, actually, it's, um, you know, if we if we get rid of the Aristotelian meta- metaphysics and say, hey, that conception survives the Aristotelian metaphysics, you don't need um, you don't need something like um, Aristotle to have that kind of sexist view. You just don't have you might have a different metaphysical view or no metaphysical view, but you might still think it's just not the kind of thing that women should be doing. So she's forward looking in this in the feminism. She just presents it in a way that's distracting because it's so old school, so antiquated. Yeah. And I think the problem with Jones is. This, this is not a criticism, it's simply an explanation as to why, one explanation. And I think you have to go back and see why were women, women written out. And so go back to the, to the early modern period and you'll see that the same kinds of things happen because they're committed to this epistemic, as I Eileen mean, put it, that is just you know, is um, on its way out. But the problem is, in the case of von Scormann, and again in the case of Jones, is that there are valuable forward-looking contributions. Um, and one of the reasons why it's important to read Jones is because there are two ways to go from Lutze to the 20th century. See, wh- whether or not Frege was influenced by Lutze, and there's a controversy about that, which it's impossible to settle because <laughs> there's just nothing that, indi- nothing that we have of him that mentions Lutze. But at Lutze's obsession with identity, it's hard to imagine that Frege being German and knowing about Lutze wouldn't have read a few right. pages and been motivated in Übersehen and Bedeutung to address these issues, right? But he addresses them in an entirely different way, right? couched in a different logical framework. But the Lutzian point, which is interesting, is that, uh, that the grammatical form is just not a good guide to logical form. Mm-hmm. If you want to study thought, it's all about logical form. You've got to look at the logical form and don't be distracted by the grammatical form. Right? And so that one way of working out that, 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 that kind of thesis is in Jones. It's just not a picture of logical form that won out. But in some sense, when Russell writes logic as, you know, has that title, logic as the essence of philosophy, they're kind of doing the same thing. It's just that they're, 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 well, they're working out the same project, but in a different, well, let me correct that. They have different projects, but they're working out, you know, a response to the same question.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that you mentioned, you know, one reason why it's important to read Jones, because one question that I have is, well, I guess it's really two questions. I'm wondering, have you have you ever taught Jones, and if so, what did you teach? How what how did you sort of fit her into uh, the relevant syllabus? But even if you didn't, even if you've never taught her or don't want to talk about a specific experience doing that, I'm curious. What do you think is important about teaching her potentially? What do you think she can bring to, um, let's say, an undergrad, advanced undergraduate or graduate level course? that um, really helps make the case for not just reading her as like in the history of philosophy as someone who was working on a problem, may have anticipated another figure we think is important, but like, you know, really as as someone whose thoughts we're going to engage with in a a living way.
0: Yeah. Thanks. That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, one one, one thing about like when you introduce Jones as saying, okay, she anticipated Frege or maybe Russell on these matters, and that, you don't want her to be known for that, right? That's just a right. way of getting her foot in the door. And I think I'm guilty. I think maybe um, Waith and Cicero were guilty of that. And I was guilty of that in my Stanford piece simply because, hey, we want some, otherwise people won't be that interested and say, well, you know, she, she beat out Frege on this, but that's not something to, you don't want to go down in history for that, right? And so <laughs> it really is, um, he got, she got it like five minutes before he did. Um, but you know, her she didn't write anything as important as on ubizen and Bedeutung. It's just you know I have to have to come out and say that, right? Um, because mm-hmm. the clarity of mind that Frege had, she just you know she's doing other things. She's teaching a ton of courses. She's she's vice mistress, then she's mistress. Um, she's getting the college out of debt, and and she has to you know participate in all these symposia. Not everything going to have the polish of on denoting or um, you know you know these major papers. Um, but well, I that- think that's
1: such a great. Point too because I think that there's so many examples of this in history of philosophy but but yeah like women didn't always have the freedom and the resources and the support and the privilege you might say to like focus on a treatise um or a text with so much so much um mental space
0: no I think that's that, that's an important thing to bear in mind because you know it, it's like look I mean um, she didn't. She wasn't given the right encouragement. She took a long time to mature, but then she she did make some important contributions. But don't forget, she had this other role as well to nurture to to run the college, but to nurture these students to get them funding. And so people like Susan Stebbing and Dorothy Rynch major. Well, a certain ste- Stebbing was a huge. You mean that that she has not been forgotten, right? Maybe she's not widely read anymore, but she's a she, she was a major figure. She was a student at Girton, who studied with Jones and Dorothy Wrench was a student of also of Russells. They were initially at Girton, and that's they got their support um, from, from people like um, from uh, you know D. E. Constance Jones. So she was she was concerned. She was not simply an administrator, but concerned concern with furthering people's careers as well. Um, and so, yes, yeah, she didn't have that much time for her own work, and so it was not. It doesn't have the polish. If you're looking for polish then there's a lot of people you're not going to be able to look at simply because they had other things to do and they just didn't have the tra- that kind of training um mm-hmm. but still then you're gonna overlook things that are really kind of play play an important role it seems to me yeah
1: yeah oh and so, so I'm sorry
0: you I, I, I forgot that because uh, yeah the, what to teach and have yeah. I taught her yeah so I when I teach history of analytic or philosophy early philosophy of language like um Last time I, so I've taught, I'd say, a, a, a seminar on descriptions a while back, right? you know, from Russell onward, and I I definitely included Jones's, um, Jones had the first response to undenoting published in 1909, so something like that is actually nice, even if you're doing something on descriptions, you can just throw that in there, and it actually, um, you know, it, it, it fills out this picture. Um, but if I were doing a course like that now, I, it's not really clear what would be a philosophy of language course, if it, but if you're doing a course in the history of analytical philosophy, just a little, you know, all you need is the Lutze that Jones refers to in her treatises, like, a, or her monograph on the new law of thought. Um, you can just see there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of different way analytical ph- or philosophy could have gone. Right. Yeah. And a different path. And she's pushing that. All right. Doesn't work. Right. But um, it's an interesting way of, of, of working out the Lutzian problematic. Right, and for her, I mean that the new law of thought is really important because it's not simply for identity statements, but it's the identi- well, it is simply for identity statements. But the problem is for her, everything is an identity statement, mm-hmm. right? And not, for, and for Frege is just dealing with one logical form.
1: I think that um, the metaphor of philosophy as sort of exploring paths and seeing which ones lead somewhere and which ones are dead ends or like in maybe even like too sort of overgrown to pass or something like that is really helpful because I do think that um, especially at the undergraduate level a lot of classes and it's understandable why they do this but a lot of the time classes are constructed so that it seems like there was a very linear story and um, this person influenced this person and then this person had a critique of this person and then you know it's very like there's either either you are influenced by someone or you're against them and you come up with a view that like is better just like keeping in mind the methodological necessity of trying things out and sort of seeing how that's happened in philosophy's history and realizing that dead ends you know that's such a pejorative way of putting it but like that's not it's not a waste of time necessarily right like it's it is productive in its in in a sense.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's why you you, you want uh, philosophy. It, it, it's mostly dead ends anyway, right? <laughs> but still, we're fascinated right. by them, <laughs> and you know the glimmer of truth in her response. And maybe there's more. I mean, you know, somebody can, might be able to work out this identity theory that is not circular and does work. But the point is that. Um, it, the insight is that hey, the, the Fregean insight that it expressed so profoundly in the Grinlog and, and it's in Jones too—it's basically don't confuse the, the the kind of grammatical clothing from the for the logical form. They're two different things, and one is one, one misleads about the other. And an attempt to work that out—that's got to be important if we we want to know how we got to Frege, Russell, and the Tractatus. There's another figure who's doing the same thing um, in in her own way. Let's let's talk about that as well.
1: So. We don't have too much time left, but I would love to hear a little bit about your um, experience encountering the work of Jones. So you mentioned that you found out about her from the, I think, Mary Ellen Waite volume. Yes, yes. yeah. but yeah what was the context of that and, and what did you find interesting there
0: well so i remember it vividly because so my late wife we were moving to northampton she was about to take a position at umass this was like 1995 and we're moving tons and tons and tons of boxes of books and and so sweltering august afternoon and, and like wow what's in here and i started looking through this and like whoa She's got, you know, so I read the Mary Lynn Way thing, and it was just immediately, you know, on, on Jones. And I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. And as luck would have it, because, you know, Smith College was right down. N- nobody, no libraries had her. I mean, they, you know, Harvard had this, Columbia had that, but but Smith had more of her books than pretty much any place. Mm-hmm. And I think it was due to maybe Alice Lewis. Oh, actually, I didn't know it then. It's due, it would have been due to Dorothy Rinch, because Rinch was a, a Girton student. Um, and so they had her autobiography, and they had the New Law of Thought. And then, of course, I got all the articles through... Um, you know back then i just um photocopied them and then i was able to using you know abe the advanced book exchange buy up everything that was available because you know i remember getting like you know the primer of logic for like five dollars from australia or something like that you know (laughs) and i just love having these things but um so i discovered her through that and i just um i couldn't really find much secondary literature anything um and so i just started working my way through this through the material and um I think at the first time I presented on it, I, I did, when I did an anthology on the theory of descriptions, I do keep, I have her in the bibliography as just a, um, you know, as a, I don't think I included a discussion of her work, but I included her in the bibliography as, you know, one of the critics of Russell. And um, I gave a paper on her to the Bertrand Russell Society Um something like Jones and the, uh, Bert Russell and the, and the Anxiety of Influence. It was a really kind of heavy-handed title borrowing from <laughs> Harold Bloom, the case of e. e. Constance Jones and just going over the, uh, the, the, the kind of controversy about that. Um, and so, yeah, I just got very excited and I was initially, um, it was really hard to, so, some of the material is not well presented, some, some better than others, some works are clearer than others and some of it I just had to really work hard to figure out what's going on, but it paid off.
1: I love that story so much because it—it just—it kind of gives me chills to think about because I feel like, and this is something that um, Christina Van Dyke and I talked very a very little bit about in my conversation with her. Just like sometimes you just kind of have a hunch about something, or something just seems exciting, and you're like, "I'm going to pursue this," and I'm not. It's not entirely clear what the payoff will be. But I just, I love hearing stories about stories that, that have that component because I think that it's really helpful and um, encouraging as, as a young thinker, whether you are going to pursue academic philosophy, even, you know, do a major or try to go to grad school or whatever it may be, just to hear, and I shouldn't even say young, just someone who's getting interested in, in thinking in this way it's very encouraging to hear stories of, of other people who just sort of followed their instincts or got excited about something and saw, saw where it led. Um, and it's so funny too, that it was just almost by luck that you happened to be so close to Smith College, which is where so many of her, of her I guess, texts were. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah, thanks Thanks for sharing that. It's, it's really fun to hear. Um, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, and this is related to the questions about teaching, if you could see to it that every student at your college, for example, whether whether they were studying philosophy or not, could read one philosophical text. What would that text be? And it and it may not be Jones, but um, it may be.
0: Um, you know. So my intro so i teach my undergraduate um, courses are generally at community college and so i teach my intro begins with um the the and the apology and it's so funny but it's still i get really great responses for that you know and they they love it. The, the, you know i have to i mean i've taught it so many times now um and i have my own reading and it could be right or wrong but i mean i they the students respond to it and also the apology and so i mean that's unfortunately that's so widely read it's not that interesting to tell people, but I think the Euthyphro is just like it should just just as as a as a understanding the Socratic dialectic and right. the the kind of um errors that Euthyphro makes and why why he's not trustworthy and things like that it's just it's it's i find it really instructive um a more dramatic thing something that would be not so that was something that would be less um obvious would be uh Poulain de labor. Um, His text on, you know, um, treatise on the equality of women. I just find that when I teach Descartes in the intro course, um, this is such a beautiful application of Cartesian philosophy to the question of of, of equality. So he says in this Poulan, so Poulin is a Cartesian, just for the audience, writing in the, you know, a, just maybe 10 years, of, 20 years after Descartes passes away, so 1660, 1670, um, but this treatise basically says, okay, forget about questions about the, the existence of the external world, right, or, or the, you know, the, the reliability of the senses, what about questions about can, can women, could a woman be a, um, you know, a judge, for example, and people will just... Resist that maybe even more than they'll resist the question, um, well, do you think there's a world outside of your mind or something like that? So uh, for, 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 for Poulin, you, you know, th- I think the great insight in Descartes is that like, the way we are so, we, we, we absorb these kinds of prejudices. We take them on and we can't see past them. And it mm-hmm. takes everything we have right, to try to break their hold on us. Right. This is just like the inside of the, 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 the end of the first meditation. So you're going to have to try really, really hard to think your way around this. And then so um, Poulin says, yeah, try to do that with gender. See how far it gets you. So you have to apply the same thing and you have to use the criterion of truth just to break that. And so um, if anybody could, so uh, so the boring answer is euthyphro, but the exciting answer is Poulin. <laughs> because I just think that Poulin is one of these things that, one of these figures that is under, and, and of course, I learned this all from my lean. You, know, you know, I didn't discover Poland on my own. But it's it's such a great thing to teach, even at the introductory level, and it fits in so perfectly with Descartes. And even if you're not interested in metaphysics, you're going to be qu- interested in questions about gender. And these things don't apply, of course. You know, they, they're more broadly than gender, but questions right. of race and class and so on and so forth. So I think that text is just. Um, I, I hope it just gets more attention because it really is um, uh, sort of underread.
1: So really just one more question before we conclude. So you mentioned that Jones was very prolific and that some of her texts are not as clear as others. So if someone listening to this were to assign a text to undergraduates, I mean, I'm sure it would depend on the context of the course and so on, but do you have any recommendations for things that are sort of good points of entry into her work?
0: Um, I would say... Um, begin with um, the uh, monograph A New Law of Thought, just read the first 10 to 15 pages, and maybe read an article, with the there are a few articles with roughly the same title, appearing about the same period of time, you know, in mind in the Aristotelian society, which put forward the same ideas. Okay. Um, that'll get you a sense of how, you know, she, she, re, she, she revisits these discussions that she had in the 1890s because she learns that Frege came upon the same distinction, and so she wants to um not necessarily take credit for it but say hey you know look if you guys accept this you know i was right all along right and so she definitely wanted to um and that's i guess why she wrote the monograph just to make sure that she um could state the proposal in her own favorite language but i think um that would be a good place to start um those essays and then you can work back and like she also i didn't mention but she wrote um a uh, review article on moore's principia ethica in the International Journal of Ethics, so that mm-hmm. for people working on ethics and metaethics, that's actually a very important piece. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I think those would be good places to start. And, if, and, and, on, and people, of course, who are interested in like, um, Victoria, you know, sort of like Sid- Sidgwick or something, um, there are already people who work on her responses. Um, and so if you look at the, um, the uh, bibliography in my Stanford piece, you'll see a lot of references to the work, um, you know, on her work on ethics.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, Gary, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. i um, really thrilled. This was a really fun conversation.
0: Well, thanks, Olivia. Thank you for having me. It was fun for me, too.
1: Thank you for listening to New Voices in Philosophy. Production of the podcast is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada as part of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy Project. This episode was produced and edited by me, Olivia Branscombe, with assistance from Petru Rochu. The music you hear is 17th century female composer, Elizabeth-Claude Jacquet de la Guerre's Sonata No. 2 in D Major, performed on the violin by Pizzeria Armanici. For more information about the project, and for future episodes, please visit our website, newnarrativesinphilosophy.net. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.